With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including e-books and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sports. My name is Keith Rathbone. I'm calling you here from Macquarie University. I'm here with Natalie Cook, or Koch, if you are a pronouncer of German, and she is the Associate Professor of Geography at the Maxwell School in, at Syracuse Uni- University, and also the editor of a, a new book from Rutledge called Critical Geographies of Sport, space, power, and sport in global perspective. Natalie, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. I'm very happy to be here. I I, um, was really happy that we could uh, get this interview together. Your book, um, for me, as somebody coming from a sports history background, uh, was fascinating uh, to see uh, uh, maybe a common set of issues and questions related to how governments use sports to promote their own legitimacy or how um, people use sports as a way to integrate or or not integrate into society, but from the perspective of space um, and and just with a different set of tools and and kind of initial questions. Uh, So I I wanted to start out by saying this was just a really uh, fascinating uh, set uh, uh, of, of essays and I guess I wanted to start by learning a little bit more about you, how you came to study sports, um, you know, more generally, and then how did you develop this specific um, book project, this edited volume? Yeah, thank you. So I, when I was a, a student from, from day one, I went into geography. I was very fortunate to fall into the discipline very early, but many students tend to find uh, geography much later if they end up with a, um, an undergraduate degree or a graduate degree in, uh, in geography. It's a relatively small discipline within the U.S., so I... When I came to geography as a discipline, I wasn't really aware of the full breadth of it because it it is very, very um, far-reaching in terms of the coverage. And as an undergraduate, I didn't really know that sports geography existed as a subfield. I knew a few corners of the discipline, but uh, as a geography major, it it really wasn't on my radar But I was doing my dissertation research as a graduate uh, student in in, uh, geography, and my dissertation work was on Astana, Kazakhstan's new capital city. And for anybody who's familiar with the cycling world uh, is is well aware that there has been a cycling team, Team Astana, uh, for for many years now. And so because I I was using the capital city project as a way to open up bigger questions of politics and identity and geopolitics, how that was all working through the images and the narratives of the capital city. Uh, and indeed, it is, it is kind of odd to have a cycling team or any team uh, named for a, uh, a, a capital city on you know, the, the world tour stage and the international stage. Uh, and in addition to that, uh, the team itself was funded by Kazakhstan's sovereign wealth fund. So this struck me as, as something of uh, something rather perplexing. And when I was in Kazakhstan during uh, one of the Tour de France victories of Alberto Contador, 
everybody in Kazakhstan was very interested in this particular victory. And even though, you know, Contador is not, um, not from Kazakhstan, had almost no attachment to Kazakhstan, he was racing for Team Astana. Uh, and people across Kazakhstan kept telling me that uh, Kazakhstan won the Tour de France. And that just struck me as, as such an odd thing to say. And I really wanted to understand this and to get more into these questions of how it is that uh, you have this this confluence of um, actors and money and people coming from all around the world to create this this particular cycling team in the name of the capital city project of uh, of, of Kazakhstan, which you know at at that point in time, people in the West probably mostly encountered through images of Borat, right? Um, and a lot of the a lot of these images around you know around the sports team and other things uh, that the government has really invested in has been in response to the Borat uh, fiasco, as I kind of think of it there. So I um, I started to do more more research on the this team and, and did interviews with people and focus groups uh, to get an understanding of how people were talking about the team and who they understood um, as, as being part of it. So this is really what what got me first going into into the topic of sports, but it was never it was never really anything I thought I would pursue in the you know in, in the in a, in a more substantial way. Uh, but I, I saw very quickly that people were very interested in this topic, and I ended up giving a number of lectures related to this. Students uh, love to engage with sports in classes and geography, and especially when you're talking about things that are quite tricky, uh, like authoritarianism, which is, you know, one of, one of the major topics that I focus on, uh, and, and other sorts of things about politics and resource economies and how governments that have a lot of resource wealth choose to invest that. You know, as I mentioned, it was the Sovereign Wealth Fund uh, taking Kazakhstan's oil and gas revenues and putting that into a cycling team to pay some Europeans to bring pride to the country on the international stage. Those are, those are kind of unusual patterns to see. So I, I really have just tried to use that as an entry point uh, to, to reach students in different audiences. So I, you know, over, over some time of working on this topic and encountering other people in geography who kind of had a similar experience as me, where they had a really intense, you know, interest in something related to sports. And I should also add, you know, here in, in this discussion of the cycling team that I myself am a cyclist. Uh, so I was interested in, in understanding it from that angle as well. Uh, so I met a number of people that had their own sort of sporting interests, perhaps, and had been following that as critical geographers, but always on the side. And it was just a, a little, you know, as we, as we sometimes say, a dessert research project. Uh, you do it when you have the time and it's, you know, it's not something that you can really get your whole sustenance on um, and make your career on, but it, it sort of made, it made a lot of, uh, a lot of the academic hurdles that we have to jump through somewhat more pleasant. And that's certainly been my experience. So I started to, to find these, um, these kindred spirits in, in geography and ended up putting together several uh, panel sessions at, uh, at two geography conferences. I think it was 2014 and 2015. So we had the annual geography meetings and um, each, of those, each of those events, we pulled in people from, that participated in that into this book. Uh, for the edited collection and there you know there, there are some people that we weren't able to include for various reasons um, and this kind of comes out in the in the beginning where I talk about why it is that geography or sports geography hasn't really been taken very seriously is that uh, in some cases or at least in one case in particular a PhD student had a absolutely fantastic paper but he was being pressured by his advisor not to contribute to the book 
because he thought it would hurt him on the job market to have done research on sports. Uh, and so he was told explicitly, don't do it. Um, and, you know, I think that that, that was a shame because he, he was doing some really, really fascinating, fantastic research. And, and I wish that we were able to include him. But it also kind of keyed me into this bigger issue uh, within geography as a discipline and in particular, uh, just this idea that that this isn't really serious work or that it really can only be a side project. And certainly for younger scholars, they shouldn't be dabbling in this. You know, obviously some people don't really agree with that, myself being in that camp. Uh, but nonetheless, it, it made me realize that in my position as, um, as a, a, you know, so still a young scholar, but now I have tenure, I have uh, the wherewithal to put together this collection and really sort of champion a critical approach to sports geography and say, this doesn't, we don't need to accept this narrative. Uh, but younger scholars, especially, you know, graduate students, they're not in a position to push that, that student who was told don't study this or don't publish on this was not necessarily in a position of power to, to push back against that. Uh, so I've, I really felt that this is something I am, I enjoy doing, uh, but I also think that it's important to sort of build that sense of community and demonstrate to younger scholars that this work can be serious. And then as that continues to grow, uh, to hopefully advance a critical approach to geography such that you wouldn't have in the future a professor tell you his student that um, that this shouldn't that this shouldn't be a topic to be published on, but to actually be very supportive and and um, encouraging of that kind of work. Yeah, I think that that's um, that tension that maybe many uh, people who work in sports studies uh, can relate to. Um, I think that's that's probably been a a part of many of our lives. Uh, I, I know, I know myself, I had the same kind of, um, even, even now I oftentimes get into conversations uh, with myself about whether I should define myself as a French historian interested in sports or as a sports historian of France. Right. <laughs> um, uh, so I think we're all kind of it, it. And I think your book does a lot to, 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 as you say, advance a kind of more critical, um, a, a more critical and and rigorous um, way of examining sport. So you're not and you're not just this isn't uh, I, for for people interested in, in reading this edited volume. This isn't just a kind of of collection that's um, put together because these all these authors are interested in in geography and sports. You're also all engaging with um, what you're calling the practice of of critical, uh, geography and you're, you're drawing, um, inspiration from, uh, uh, another or uh, earlier scholar, John Bale. So I wonder if you can unpack a little bit, um, what you all mean within the discipline of geography when you talk about critical geography and who John Bale is and, and what does studying sports bring to the table, um, when you're engaging in this kind of critical geography, what kinds of of, of different types of questions or maybe different angles on the same questions does sports uh, avail uh, to you? Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, the the way that I talk about or I sort of introduce critical geography in the, in the volume and, and elsewhere in my own research is, you know, there, there's been... There's been a push in many academic circles, not just in geography, but to talk about, um, you know, critical fill in the blank. Uh, and often what, I mean, everybody seems to have a different take on what that means. And there might be some people who, who see critical research in the social sciences as coming from a particular theoretical angle. Uh, so, you know, you can have post-structuralism or post-colonialism. Um, you might see some people grouping feminist theory into this. Uh, Marxist approaches sometimes get looped in here as well. So there's all different range of, of pulling on these, these different theoretical camps. Um, I don't think 
it's very useful to distinguish between those different camps. Rather, what I see as a commonality across what people are kind of subsuming under this critical umbrella is an interest in power. And to me, that's the sort of unifying thread. And I know that that's, you know, obviously all of these different theoretical approaches are going to approach power in a different way, but they nonetheless have an interest in understanding the politics and the power relations that play out in whatever um, topic they're researching, but then also a kind of reflexivity of the power and the political positioning of the researcher uh, themselves. So trying to bring those perspectives into um, into sports geography, I think is something that has been uh, the, the earliest work that you really see is coming from John Bell, as you mentioned, uh, the, the effort to focus on um, political relations in this kind of research is is quite significant, I think, at, at the early years when he was writing initially back in the, the early 80s, because geography at that time was very quantitative. And there are still, you know, there, there's large segments of the discipline that, that are more interested in modeling and mapping and just using mapping technologies uh, to come up with some, um, some statistical answer to a question that they might have. And so you can still see this a couple of years ago at the geography conferences. I'm sure there's probably still people doing this kind of research now where they're, they're just interested in seeing how you can use GIS technologies, geographic information systems technologies uh, to map like the, um, the, the spectatorship of a, of a particular team or uh, looking at where college athletes are recruited from and just using mapping technologies to tell us that information. Um, to me, sports geography or critical sports or a critical sports geography needs to go one step further, right? It's to ask uh, about the, the the political relations that you are actually mapping, and then also to reflect on your role as a researcher um, in how you are engaging with these sorts of technologies of mapping and knowing. So, not to just leave it there but to go one one step further to look at the power dynamics of of research and of whatever it is you're researching uh, so again i think in in the early days when john bill was was writing on a, a sports geography um geography was still very much focused on um on this more sort of you know, quantitative mapping approach to things. And this was, though, at the time, you know, in a number of, across a number of different science, so, social sciences, people were starting to get more interested in social theory and uh, reading a number, a, a number of scholars from, um, you know, in the, in the uh, Foucauldian tradition that I'm mostly rooted in myself, uh, from, from Foucault's work and others kind of in that, in that direction and actor network theory. And this is kind of the late eighties when we start to really see this, the rise of, um, feminist theory in, in across the social sciences. So this, starts to come to a number of the social sciences, including geography. And for me, when I say critical theory and critical geography, I'm interested, you know, in, in that sort of broader shift to think about and to prioritize power in the study uh, of the various, the various topics that we're all interested in. Um, and then from uh, from there, I think you know we start to see a number of people across across the discipline and in their various subfields engaging with this. Um, but for for whatever reason, well, actually, probably because sports geography is simply small and not hasn't hadn't really come to its own at that point in time. Uh, the critical approach never really took. So John Bale was an absolutely prolific author, um, put together an astonishing number of you know monographs, edited collections, uh, all range of work. But he was you know he he, he didn't seem to to 
uh, the the field itself didn't seem to necessarily ossify into uh, something something too much broader uh, than him and a handful of colleagues within within geography. And you know, he worked across the discipline, you know, across disciplinary lines as well. Uh, such that you know, by the time I came to start doing research on this about uh, probably seven years ago or so, uh, this still didn't there still wasn't really a strong sense that sports geography could be something more than it is, even though he had already laid that groundwork as as had a number of others. You know, there's there's obviously another a, a number of other scholars like Rooney um, and and some and a handful, uh, but you know it just it just hadn't really ossified into a into a a mainstream approach within sports geography so then in in some ways the the larger and in fact i i I think it's fair to say the broader goal of this um edited volume is not just to illuminate these separate um but interconnected questions uh that all the authors are dealing with and i they all they do all center around the question of power and power relation but also to to articulate um, a kind of new approach or more rigorous approach to the study of sport within geography. And then perhaps even more, I, I'm sorry, I, <laughs> perhaps even more also, I, 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 um, there's, a, there's an interesting almost activist uh, call at the end of your um, introduction to, or maybe at the end of your conclusion, um, at, at the end of your conclusion, um, that, that gestures towards using these tools in, in a social justice um, space. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. So, you know, I think the, the, one of the major reasons I wanted to keep a broader approach to what critical theory would mean in the volume is that I don't believe in, I mean, I, I, I truly do feel like a lot of um, theoretical frameworks are, they're built upon a kind of authoritarian ethic. And that is that this is the right approach. <laughs> and that's really it. Uh, so, you know, I don't, I don't believe in that. I believe that academia and theoretical frameworks uh, should be pluralistic. And I, I think that that's really important to allow people the space, students as much as, you know, established scholars, to give people the space uh, to think through the different theoretical tools that might be useful for them. I mean, I, I will refuse to adhere to any particular theory because I don't think theory is, is dogma. I think it's a set of tools that you might apply systematically uh, when when it's useful. So I think because of my, you know, my personal commitment to maintaining that pluralism, uh, I wanted to make sure that I gave the authors in the collection f- the freedom and the space to do that uh, and to approach that in any number of ways that they might that they might choose. And I think one of the one of the interesting tensions or the difficult tensions for many scholars who are interested in social theory and, you know, if, it's, if they want to call it critical, radical, uh, whatever it is, many, many people are deeply committed to social justice and thinking about how, uh, how their research might be used to, you know, to transform the world for good into something more just. And that's not usually, that's, that's not always an easy question to answer. In fact, it's a very difficult question to answer as academics. Uh, so, you know, I think each of the, each of the chapters thinks about power in a different way, but often when you know, when ending a research study um, in a country that is not your own, it's very difficult to say this is what we should do to achieve justice in this particular situation. Uh, not just because of that difference between the researcher and the researched, uh, but also because 
you know, in a number of cases, a vast majority of cases, in my view, that's really quite ambiguous. So there, you know, how do you, how do you necessarily assess what is the right or wrong thing to do in a particular situation? So I think the the chapter that I've co-authored as the conclusion, together with Dave Jansen, is to get people to reflect on what social justice means in um, in how they're approaching it in their work, and to think about the multiple axes of that within sports um, you know sports studies more generally because there, it's it's not clear how you um, how you set your priorities in this particular case right because the different axes of political divide that we see kind of playing out in the book, there's, uh, you know, things to give the example of Lisa Nelson's chapter on uh, Latinos playing soccer in fields in rural Georgia, and the exclusions that these people feel. It is very much along the Latino, non-Latino divide, but it is also internal to the community in terms of men versus women uh, and how men and women experience that um, that that act of playing soccer on the weekends uh, with some friends quite differently in that particular context. Uh, then you can look at you know just just taking one example of environmental issues and the environmental impact of sport that is another completely different way of thinking about what social justice and equality means than necessarily uh just the, the focus on race or migration stat or um, doc- like status of your documentation uh versus gender the environmental implications yes they often have connections to those axes, uh, but nonetheless, the kinds of the kinds of problems that you would be focusing on if you took um, took that lens are going to be somewhat different, right? So, what we're we're hoping to do in the conclusion is just to open that up a bit more and to say, you know, we have all these different axes of difference. Um, but to kind of leave it, leave it somewhat open in terms of how people are comfortable engaging, uh, engaging with those, um, uh, with those different issues. One thing I always tell my, tell my students and pretty much anybody who will listen, one of my, my favorite quotes from, um, the French theorist Michel Foucault, he talks about politics as a kind of aesthetics, Right. And for Foucault, uh, his personal political interests were related to um, to uh, to prison reform. I mean, that's just one one of his his handful of issues that he was particularly interested in. But he saw this as you know a, a, a personal inclination to address this, and he was very passionate about this. But he understood that many people didn't necessarily share that passion and that their passion might lie somewhere else and that is you know and that's why he kind of frames it as a kind of aesthetics how you personally are positioned and your own preferences and your own abilities and your own skill set are going to come into how you are thinking about what issues uh, are, are important for you to address if you're interested in these social justice questions uh, or these questions of power and politics because again when you're when you're thinking in a, a broad sense and especially as as I do work in authoritarian contexts opposition and resistance and social change doesn't happen through the same channels that we you know sort of have this essential uh, essentialist liberal understanding of, of opposition and resistance and change uh, through free speech and demonstration and protest and elections and all those sorts of things what if those are closed down to you how do you make change? What sort of ways do people find into the system to challenge those power relationships or alter those power relationships or at least benefit from those power relationships? None of that is really um, 
is is really clear from from many of the a, a great deal in my opinion of the great deal of the research on liberal context so again here just trying to open it up to say there there are broader ways of thinking about social justice uh, that that we hope you know including chapters from liberal democracies and authoritarian states can help shine a little bit of light on that Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, I, 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 I think readers should know, uh, listeners should know, uh, just how um, diverse the, the range of, of essays you can find in this edited volume. I mean, people addressing questions of stadium construction and, and, and deconstruction in Seoul, um, the several articles related to the integration of immigrants in different places, um, in the United States and Georgia, for example, as you mentioned, but also in, in Ireland, um, professional wrestling uh, uh, <laughs> in territory, which was particularly uh, interesting um, to me, as well as as a series of articles that relate to author- authoritarian regimes. And you, you've divided uh, this up in your volume into the first half of the book dealing with uh, sports and state spaces. Um, and then the second half dealing with sports and community and urban spaces. Your, your, your uh, contribution is in, is in the first part of the book and, and, and you're looking at uh, athletic autocrats and, and, and unpacking in some ways how, um, how autocrats use athleticism um, in particular ways. So I wonder if you can talk us through uh through your own work in the volume for a minute, how did you come to this project, and, and what 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 do we need to know about uh, autocratic sportsmen? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I've because I work in the post of post Soviet world, or uh, have worked there for so many years. I you know I, I've obviously seen all of the images of of Vladimir Putin uh, doing different Shirtless, sports. Shirtless, uh, riding horses. And, yeah, exactly. Judo is what he, you know, where he really got his start. But since becoming president of Russia, then he's all of a sudden doing all these other sports. And and there are these very coordinated photo ops, right? Uh, so it's, it's really quite impressive to... Um, to to see the array of these images but it's not just putin number one so i I noticed this certainly because i work primarily in in central asia and in kazakhstan and in turkmenistan uh the president is constantly photographed uh doing doing sports as well so i had started to do research on this some some years before i actually ended up writing this chapter and it, you know, there, there's actually a number of cases in non-authoritarian contexts where you have the leaders being photographed uh, doing sports. So there's kind of, um, you know, this whole thing in and around uh, the, one of the Clinton-Gore election campaigns where they're doing sports together. And there's always a commentary in the United States media about the the um, the leaders athleticism or <clears throat> lack of athleticism <laughs> in some cases uh, right so anyways this is this is a common thing and um, I I noticed as well as I, as I started to do more research on this that um, Putin wasn't the only one in history to have uh, have been photographed shirtless doing sports, but that in fact um, Mussolini was perhaps the first one to do this. And Mus- there were tons of pictures of Mussolini uh, shirtless skiing was the most famous one, but he's doing all sorts of other things shirtless. Uh, so you know, this this got me thinking about uh, the the sort of cultural divides and differences of these leaders doing uh, sports. So as I mentioned, because I'm a scholar of authoritarianism, I was most interested in explaining this in authoritarian contexts. 
Uh, and so what I wanted to do in the chapter that I wrote on athletic autocrats is simply to ask, why does this happen? What is the reason for this? And why do we see this across so many, uh, so many countries and across history? Like this is, this is not an isolated phenomenon. So what I decided to do in the end was to choose, um, to choose three different autocratic leaders and to think about how they've been portrayed as sportsmen. And I should note here, I did not find any. Uh, yeah. Women I wanted that to would ask you about that actually. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, the, I, the, the way I sort of come to it is maybe a facile explanation, but I, I mean, there's just, there simply aren't many women autocrats uh, that, are, that are heads of state. So you could, you could certainly find uh, a few women that, that might classify as such, but I, I didn't find any that were, um, uh, that were actually being portrayed as doing athletics. And, you know, there's, there's all sorts of cultural reasons for that. And that is, in fact, what, where I wanted to go with this chapter is to think about the gender performance of, of these, these pictures, right? Uh, portraying the leader as, um, as an athlete. There's a, there's a certain construction of masculinity that happens through these photographs and through their circulation and the, uh, you know, in the political uh, community where, where they're, uh, where they're grounded. So I wanted, I wanted to think then also uh, and contribute to some of the research and, you know, various um, interdisciplinary uh, discussions about gender and identity. And there's a strong direction of this in sports studies as well, thinking about the body um, and the gendered experiences of sport. But here, thinking or focusing more on masculinity, Right. Uh, because I think that that's, you know, in, in gender studies overall, I, I simply think that's there's, there's a lot more that needs to be said about that, especially in authoritarian regimes. So how do we then see different cultural understandings and constructions of masculinity coming out through these photographs? So I focus on um for this particular chapter, I focus on uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, Chairman Mao in China, uh, who was portrayed as as um, uh, as as a swimmer, and in uh, the third case is Sheikh Zayed, who is known as the founding father of the Emirates of the UAE, which is another country where I also do research. So I just wanted to think about, you know, I, I didn't want to make any overgeneralizations about how masculinity works through these pictures, but to actually try and ground that in some specific cases. Um, so there's a different kind of performance of the of the masculine ideal and the the leader as having this um, this particular strong hand or just being particularly virile in the case of Putin, right? That that comes out and gets portrayed through these. Um, um, through these images, and there's a different kind of masculinity than um, when you're looking at somebody like Sheikh Zayed, who, in terms of sports, is primarily framed as a lover of falconry, or a number of the other leaders, the current leaders in the UAE, as um, lovers of equestrian sport. So there, there are different constructions of the images around the care of the animal and the sort of paternalism that is being displayed there versus, you know, Putin going out in the, you know, rough countryside of Russia and, and connecting with the land in that way. Uh, there's also a different construction of the homeland in the Arabian Peninsula where the falconry and the, the horse racing or in camel racing and other, other sort of heritage, quote unquote, heritage sports that are playing out in the desert and that sort of landscape. So it's the construction of um, masculinity in and through these landscapes as well uh, that, that, is, uh, is is what I'm sort of getting to in this particular approach. And I think to, um, to, to come back to one of your earlier questions about the, the, the special focus on space and place of geography allows us to really pull, pull apart some of those geographic differences and to point to how different the 
cult of personality around Putin is from Mao, from Idi Amin, from uh, Sheikh Syed to uh, to Mussolini, right? We might talk about it as if it's a if this is a uniform phenomenon, but really you have to understand the political geography, the cultural geography, all those sort of social elements coming together to to help understand why uh, why these autocrats use sports and, and images of sports in in the way that they do. Yeah, I, th- th- this chapter in particular, and I'm not just saying that because we're talking, <laughs> but. Um, I'm also interested in the way in which authoritarian regimes use sports and the ways in which autocrats use sports. Um, but I, I, I loved the kind of different tensions we could see um, when you pull these three autocrats together, especially uh, Sheikh Zayed, who I was not as familiar with um, this kind of, of discourse around around him. And it, it's a very different, as you suggest, discourse of masculinity that seems focused not only on these heritage games and very much um, in line with the specific um, uh, desert dwelling communities of the of the Emirates, but also seems to focus on a kind of mastery, you know, that, uh, that that's very different from the kind of almost virile, um, you know, judo shirtless uh, of 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 Putin. And so there may be different different models of 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 what at times um, you refer to as their superhuman nature, their superhumanity. Um, but at the same time, they also have uh, you know Putin maybe more than Sheikh Syed has to uh, portray himself as almost. Uh, I, I've been in Australia too long. I wanted to use the word blokish, like an ordinary sports, uh, you know, somebody ordinarily interested in sports and not just doing this um, uh, because uh, he needs to have a political a, a political image, but also to be an authentically sporty person, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Well, and I mean, I, again, I think that comes back to the the various cultural and social and political differences in a place like Russia uh, versus the UAE. So there's that each of these each of these men is working within within a different. Um, they're, they're circulating with different groups, right? So when when we talk about something like the cult of personality or uh, the, this idea of a cult of personality, one of the one of the biggest challenges of even just that frame, the cult. Um, I mean, there's a there's a, a strong thread of Orientalism that gets uh, that gets woven in there, right? But overall, the 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 falseness of this construction of the the, the dear leader as a, as superhuman is that the dear leader as a singular entity exists as such, uh, and rather than you know acknowledging that Putin is only powerful because well he has a whole network of people that are constantly kowtowing and 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 doing everything in their power to please him, uh, but they're also very much interested in maintaining that idea that Putin does everything uh, because that means that then they can they can. Advance themselves in a way that deflects attention from certain political relations that they have, and so this is this is um, what you certainly saw with the case of Stalin um, and Hitler and others. They very they had a they had a wide network of elites who were in that inner circle, who were very interested in maintaining that that myth of the of the central leader because they were able to skirt around. Um, a skirt around criticism themselves, right? Because it was just the the leader does X, and and, and then it's this disjuncture between the implementation. But the leader is, is pure, and his intentions are good. Um, so that this this is a common sort of thing that you have playing out. But nonetheless, somebody like Putin, he he has to he has to maintain his position of power. In my opinion, um, as an observer of Russian politics over many years, he has to uh, maintain that position at the center because he's he's really his his entire livelihood and existence is is built upon maintaining. Um, his place in these um, in 
these networks around him. So with the case of the UAE, it's a rather different kind of um, configuration than post-Soviet Russia, where there is much more, uh, there is much more, uh, well, I would say a broader sort of consultative culture that that is how politics works, and that that then plays out in um, in the way that people exert their influence and demonstrate their masculinity and demonstrate their prowess and their ability to be a good leader. So, being able to demonstrate that you are a consultative person with the elites uh, is is something that you're going to see as as prioritized. So, one of the things, and I do I do um, research on falconry. I've, I've continued to do it for many years now, probably like five years now, um, research on falconry in the Gulf states and, and looking at the connections also in, in Central Asia. Uh, but what the, the space of the camp uh, is, is really important in understanding uh, falconry and why it is, a, it is seen as a sport that, um, that these, these groups of men go and they do together. And they're deciding many important political decisions at the camp, at, around the campfire, and that sort of social experience of, um, of that is really important. And in a similar fashion, as we, I think maybe through the reference for Americans or um, Brits perhaps would be golf, right? A lot of these, the, the social, um, social networks and connections happen uh, through not really the, the playing of golf, right? <laughs> Who really cares what, what your, what your score was at the end of the day. Um, but it's, it's that, venue for materializing these really important power relations. So, you know, I think in, in the case of the UAE and, and falconry, there's a similar kind of dynamic for some, um, some of these elites who are engaging in the sport and continues today. I'd like to turn um, a little bit to some of the other authors um, work uh, uh, and to come back to what you were saying about the particular ways in which sports are being mobilized in the post-Soviet uh, sphere. Two of your co-authors, Slavomir Horik, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing any names, uh, Veli Pekka Tinkinen, uh, it's, I'm sure mispronounced, uh, both w- worked on, on sport in the post-Soviet sphere. Uh, I wonder if there's something uh, maybe particular about the way in which um, authoritarian governments, uh, companies, uh, um, cities are working together in these post-Soviet spaces to, to use sports in new ways, or, or are we just seeing um, maybe reflections of what's already been done in new places? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, there's, to, to me, there's, certainly been a long-standing aspiration across uh, the post-Soviet space to host uh, these major sporting events, what I refer to as sort of first-tier sporting events. Uh, but because of the various political difficulties in, in a number of the countries across the region, they're really only ending up with second-tier events. Uh, and that's that's an example of what uh, Slavomir is looking at in his chapter on uh, Turkmenistan's Asian Games in 2017. And what you should note about the Asian Games in 2017 is it's not really the full proper Asian Games. It was just the inner, um, the indoor martial arts games. So just a little, a little segment of that. Um, and and Slavomir's chapter talks a, a bit about this, and I've also ri- written um, another article elsewhere with a colleague uh, from Azerbaijan, uh, Anar Valiyev, on exactly this topic of how it is that, that these particular countries end up hosting all these second-tier events like the, the Asian Games. Uh, you know, Kazakhstan has hosted that as well. Uh, Azerbaijan hosted the European Games uh, a couple of years ago and what you see common across these particular countries and the ones, you know, I'll first talk about the, the Central Asian cases and I'll come back to Russia, uh, which is what Velipeka's article is about, her chapter is about these, these, 
these countries are all, so Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Azerbaijan, they all have pretty substantial oil and gas resources. And the way that they're, um, that the, the governments have, you know, sort of formed in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union in 91 has very much been t- tied to developing those resources and in investing them in major infrastructure projects. And the infrastructure projects, yes, they do materialize certain things uh, like big stadium <laughs> and new capital cities, uh, amongst other sorts of iconic architecture and big expensive projects. But what this sets in motion is the possibility to use state money, money from the sovereign wealth fund, from the administration um, central budget to fund these projects, infrastructure, like stadium, whatever it is. So they're taking state money um, and putting that to these projects. By and large, I mean, across across the region, it is, um, it's pretty endemic, is that these, these are, I, I just will be blunt, big money laundering schemes. So if you look at the construction companies that are building um, these, these various projects, they're almost all headquartered. Well, they are all headquartered offshore. Offshore being, you know, just a, a, in another country from the the country where the projects are being built. So the big construction companies are overpaid for what they are building and are then able to get that money offshore and into personal bank accounts um, via, you know, all sorts of convoluted processes, which we probably know the most about in the case of Azerbaijan, courtesy of the Panama Papers. Uh, But, you know, there's fortunately been quite a bit of um, recent, you know, information that that has been given about these schemes. Nonetheless, these sporting events really allow this to happen because it gives a justification for putting more and more money into these iconic projects. Um, so to come back to the case of Turkmenistan and, the, and what Slavomir's chapter is, is focusing on, the, um, the government of Turkmenistan put billions of dollars into building this Olympic park area. And ostensibly, you know, this is because, well, they need the sporting facilities for this Asian Games in 2017. There was absolutely um, no, no need for the kind of facilities and the kind of money that they put into this. But nonetheless, it was used uh, used as a justification for this kind of um, this kind of development and to push that forward. So uh, th- this is something that you that you see elsewhere in the region and in Russia. It's it's a similar dynamic, although rather more diffuse. Uh, so I think one of the interesting things about the World Cup in 20, um, 2018, so last year, was that. All of a sudden, you had these these kind of investments getting spread across Russia, uh, whereas when you had the um, the the Olympics in Sochi, much of that investment and the companies and the people that were benefiting uh, directly from the sort of state largesse uh, were rather concentrated. So sometimes, you know, the 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 physical geography of the country really matters and is significant to understanding how these um, revenues get distributed and patronage gets distributed through the country and through the different political networks, um, you know, such that, you know, you have uh, something more diffuse in, in Russia versus Turkmenistan versus uh, Kazakhstan. I think what one thing, though, that we really wanted to do across the collection is to bring in perspectives that weren't just focused on the Olympics or focused on the major um, mega events, right? Because to the extent that geographers have done work on this, you know, on on sports in recent years, it is almost exclusively located in the realm of um, mega events. So what I wanted to do in, in putting together this collection was to make sure that we didn't just reproduce one of the those volumes because there are many now um and so i I was very happy oh go ahead i I was gonna say i actually saw some interesting parallels uh between uh slavomir's articles and then articles in the later section um written by uh uh young uh wooly and um michael friedman talking about 
stadium in, in, in Seoul, and then the construction of mall parks and, and in the United States. Um, I, for me, it was fascinating to consider the, the ways in which um, some of uh, the, the, the more critical lens that we could apply to projects that we see in sort of the post-Soviet space or um, generally within the global South, when we turn a similar critical lens at our construction projects in the United States or in South Korea, or I'm sure across much of the world, <laughs> it doesn't look so different, does it? <laughs> uh, absolutely. Well, and that's, that's always a point that I make when I, um, when I give lectures on, you know, in the last year, I did a lot of, a lot of public lectures on the world cup in Russia and will probably, because I am, I'm sitting now in Doha, Qatar, which who is hosting the 2022 game. So I've been working in the Gulf for, for quite a long time, but whenever I, I, I speak on this topic at lectures or speaking with students, I constantly come back to the way that we see a lot of um, the same dynamics playing out in ostensibly Western liberal democratic contexts. Uh, so with, with the example of the London games, you had evictions in and around the stadium and East End. Uh, you saw a lot of very authoritarian practices playing out on the ground in Rio uh, with favela relocations and, and other sorts of dynamics. And you also obviously have the, the, the big example of the Montreal games in Canada. Uh, you know, the, the, the city was only able to pay off its debt <laughs> from the Olympic Stadium. I think it was in 2013 or something, right? Massive corruption scandal around that. Um, and and those, those things are, are often forgotten. And so whenever I, I present about these authoritarian countries where I do research, I, I do try to come back to that um, particular point. But I think the, the broader the broader challenge then is how we see uh, how, how we see sporting bodies facilitating or pushing back against um, that as a possibility, right? So what uh, what we what we see in terms of the behavior and the decisions of FIFA and the IOC in recent years is you know, they seem to be pretty on board with this. And they're, they're happy to profit from that, right? So when, when the media is just kind of demonizing these authoritarian places and, and critiquing their human rights abuses, et cetera, et cetera, to my mind, we need to be talking about who are the actors that are facilitating this, because I can guarantee you there's a lot of complicity from Western construction companies from various consulting companies, um, energy and power suppliers, uh, all range of suppliers uh, that are interested in this, just as much as there is, you know, then the institutional frameworks like people in um, FIFA and the IOC who are, who are facilitating this. So, I, you know, obviously we should be worried about these other human rights issues, but I think that if that so dominates the coverage of these major sporting events and what have you, that we fail to look back um, on what and, and who is actually promoting that from ostensibly democratic context, we we don't really get anywhere. Uh, so so that's, that, that's sort of something I've, I've been interested in thinking about for some time now, but I, I appreciate the point of making that connection. And I think, you know, um, Jung our chapter on Korea's uh, Dongdaemun Stadium is is really fantastic because he, you know, he he traces this in terms of the history as well, uh, and and shows us how the the vision and the ideas about the the baseball stadium in Korea have changed so dramatically over decades, and how that plays out in municipal politics, and how the municipal politics are also shifting as we see the um, we see the understanding of the stadium 
coming uh, coming to the end or the eventuality of being demolished and re- replaced with a design plaza, uh, and then the stadium itself being relocated on the outskirts of the city in a completely different you know style and type of stadium, uh, which which is all to say, you know, there, there's a longer life to a lot of these projects than the very narrow temporal focus that we often end up with uh, when we just focus on the the mega events. Um, but I, di- I did want to just quickly come back to Velipeka's chapter on, uh, on Russia, because I think there's also a point about the the spatial diffusion of a number of these these initiatives and how authoritarian governments but other other governments as well they 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 have uh, or sporting events and sporting programs have a much broader spatial extent than is often really acknowledged and i think Billy Pekka's article a chapter showing how um, gazprom the the russian uh, gas company uses sports uh in in a way to kind of you know he talks about it in terms of capillary power to extend its reach into all these various corners across russian territory uh and and to bring that to to life across space so the you know we we can think about the uh, about the different times and the different spaces of of sport in a much more productive manner if we if we get beyond the sort of spectacle of the mega event right because the power of the spectacle is to pull your attention to what's at the center and it's more immediate more centralized temporality and and spatiality uh but but what i think a lot of the chapters do very well is to show that there's there's something much more diffuse and if we just train our eye on what is more diffuse uh, we might have a different understanding of of how power is working in these in these different spaces and times well, great. Um, and with that, I guess I'd like to pose our, our last question, which is, Natalie, what are you working on now? What can we look forward to hearing about soon? So I, uh, I am working on a handful of, of projects. As I mentioned, I'm, I'm still doing research on falconry. This is uh, one, one aspect of the research I've been doing in the Gulf countries is looking at heritage sports. Uh, and here again, trying to to shift beyond just thinking about the the mega events in the area, although there are quite a few uh, large events, large sporting events being hosted in the Gulf countries and Qatar and the UAE is where I, I have been focusing my research in the last um, in the last years. So I ha- I first started to go to travel to Doha, which I mentioned um, is is where I am at the moment. Back in 2012. Uh, So since then you know and by the time world cup uh, arrives in um in 2022 i will have been watching the city uh transform and get ready for for the games for a period of about 10 years so it has been um you know kind of a, a longer term approach to just watching and observing what what uh is playing out in the region i've also been uh i've been working on some research in the last last several weeks and you know paying attention to this somewhat before uh, looking at golf uh, sponsorship of international sporting teams and probably you know what people know best is probably the emirates and all of the 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 european football clubs and and other clubs around the world in fact that they sponsor with the big fly emirates logo but uh, there's you know there's also etihad and qatar airways so i'm looking at those three airlines as well as um, several of the elites who are from the Emirates and from Qatar who own uh, various um, various teams in the area. So, yeah. Ex- exactly. So Sheikh Mansour of the Emirates, who owns um, Man City, Manchester City. Uh, there's also Sheikh Nasser bin Hamad Al Khalifa, who uh, who is behind the new cycling team uh, Bahrain Merida. Um, Emirates also sponsors a cycling team now as well. So I'm looking at you know the the, the role of these Gulf 
individuals, companies, sovereign wealth funds, and others who are um, who are putting money into international sports. And, and they're, again, kind of asking a, a similar set of questions as you mentioned before of how and why are they doing this? Because I don't think it's as simple as what a lot of people say. You know, it's just the Gulf Gulf countries trying to promote a positive image on the international stage. Okay, sure, there's a piece of that. Um, but if you look at the the um, Emirati and the Qatari elites who are sponsoring this, they also identify as athletes and it's a particular interest of them. But they're also pulling sovereign wealth fund money into these projects. And it, it is very much seen as a particular kind of investment. And uh, in some cases, they're okay with losing certain royal wealth. Uh, but in other cases, when you've got the sovereign wealth fund and the big airlines involved, they are very very much after certain profits. Uh, so I'm trying to there, again, just tell a, a more diffuse story about why we see the rise of, of Gulf uh, sports sponsorship, especially after 2008, um, when we saw the uh, financial crash, or the, the, the global financial crisis, as well as in 2009, the financial fair play regulations coming into uh, or being adopted in um, UEFA such that European football teams were not to be losing money, uh, lest they be sanctioned, lest they be sanctioned. So th- this, you know, sort of confluence events and interests as has what has been uh, behind a lot of this. So that's, that's just a handful of the things that I'm working on. But obviously, uh, looking looking at the developments in, uh, in Doha, and seeing all of the, the stadiums going up around the city, it's, um, it's, it's significant, even you know, it was it was already uh, a World Cup under the international eye, but now that Qatar is under blockade and has been since June 2017 from its neighbors, um, the the politics of the blockade has absolutely been playing out through uh, through sports and Qatar's winning of the the Asia Cup in Abu Dhabi when I was there a couple of weeks ago was quite dramatic, um, and uh, you know there there's a number of things that are that are really fascinating to watch in terms of how um, how these politics in the GCC region and you know the the, the world at large play out through um, through these major sporting events, but also then you know and just the corporate sponsorships like Emirates um, sponsoring PSG uh, and that deal ending because well it is a it is a, a team uh, owned by uh, a Qatari businessman. So, you know, th- these th- these are the the general things that I think is so powerful about sport is um, being able to look at, as I mentioned before, something very tricky and politically difficult, uh, but through something that's a little bit more familiar and easier to understand uh, for for many of us who are interested in the sporting world. Thank you so much again, Natalie, for joining us. Um, this has been Keith Rathbone. I'm speaking today with Natalie Cook, Associate Professor of Geography at the Maxwell School at Syracuse University and the editor of a, of a really fascinating edited volume that you all should check out from Rutledge called Critical Geographies of Sport, Space, Power, and Sport in Global Perspectives. Uh, thank you all very much for listening to new books and sports. Thank you, Natalie, for joining us. Um, that's goodbye for me. Thank you. Bye.